0: hey dave how are
1: you i'm good how's everything
0: with you yeah yeah it's, it's all good and uh, it's great isn't it we've got another guest on today which is yep. uh, you know what we absolutely uh, enjoy and it's our second female guest which is uh always much nicer yeah we enjoy talking to men <laughs> but it's nice to get different perspectives on things and uh, we've got charlotte richardson and she's got 10 years in uh, marketing, media, across all different formats of grassroots football, all the way through to the pro game. And it is currently doing uh, broadcasting with Charlton, I believe. We'll definitely check on that, but I'm sure that is, is the case. So big background in broadcasting and commentary that is starting. I think she's just um, highlighted it's pivoting that way. And uh, that's got to be exciting with all the things that are happening in female football. You know, and I think there's a breakaway two leagues I've just read recently. So that that's a a real big thing. And then uh, also a club, FA club consultant. So working with grassroots teams, which I think is one of her passions for years, you know, um, helping grassroots clubs get in good places and have good governance and able to support each other. So, Charlotte, it's absolutely lovely to have you on. Welcome to the trip podcast. How are you?
2: Thank you so much for having me. I'm I'm really well thank you. Yeah, busy. The football season's really I mean it's always busy, isn't it, but it's really beginning to to yeah. go up a notch at the moment. So, um really really enjoying it and thank you for having me on.
0: Oh, oh no. it's an absolute pleasure. Like I say, we we love having different guests from lots of different backgrounds uh to share their stories. So, um dave what do you think the first question should be for charlotte today well i was just gonna say uh you,
1: charlotte you mentioned we're hit we're coming towards the like you say it's always busy but the everyone thinks the christmas period is the busiest time of the football season so what you're a very busy person but what's your week looking like like what <laughs> simon mentioned all these activities like how ha- like what do you do each day like yeah. how, how do you remember what you're doing each day
2: very very good question and I think um <laughs> arguably some of my friends and family will say I forget when it comes to them but with football obviously <laughs> I have to stay very organized and that's what's the great part about my job and um, you know I work as a freelancer now I spent most of my career sort of having a, a main job um somewhere but doing lots of bits and pieces here yeah. and there but I took the sort of leap of faith in January to go freelance to really focus on the broadcasting for, for the very reason that no week is ever the same. The hours can be really all over the place and trying to hold down a sort of nine to five job was proving really difficult. So I thought yeah. i just cut those ties and be my own boss and see where it goes. And I mean, this week, for example, I've got five games in in seven days. Um, I've covered Charlton a couple of occasions. I'm doing the England Netherlands game at Wembley, which I'm really excited about, and then doing the championship game. There's FA Cup coverage going on. So no, no week is ever the same, which I absolutely love. And I think the fact that I've spent my career working across the football pyramid lends itself to the the same amount of enjoyment and you know of course there's a pinch me moment when you're going to cover an England game but Mm -hmm. I'll enjoy that as much as covering Cray Valley versus Charlton in the FA Cup and so it's a real mixed bag and like Simon said as well I'm an FA Club consultant so I still like to do that part of the game as well, working within the grassroots division at the Football Association, advising clubs on how to become more sustainable, really good community assets is something that I'm really passionate about. And um, so I feed that into the hours around all of the fixtures.
1: You must um, have a, a busy... Yeah. I don't know, Like I, I really don't know how you can balance that out. But anyway, Simon. What?
0: So it, it's, <laughs> it's interesting for us because we always have inspiring stories on, you know, so where does your inspiration come from? Where did you get this? So you started in marketing and media. Then, you know, what's been your drivers? Where have you got to? Because it's great to hear, you know, you're now in and around England, Netherlands, you know, fixtures. You know, so that's got to be an amazing feeling. But how does someone get to that sort of place? You know, um, if someone's listening and they thought, you know, Charlotte's story sounds really interesting, what sort of... How does a journey look, I suppose, would be the, the question?
2: Well, my journey certainly hasn't been the most traditional. I mean, I'm 32 years old. And when I was younger, quite simply, football and being a woman in football were just not a thing. There were not the
3: mm.
2: organisations that there are now. There was not the development going into the women and girls game. So really and truly, it took me until I was about... 16 to 18, deciding those A-levels, thinking about where I wanted to go to university, that I first heard a woman on TV and on the radio, and that was Jackie Oatley. And Mm. I'd always loved football. I'd I'd gone with my dad since I was about six years old. I loved the atmosphere. I loved watching. You know, from a pretty young age, I would quite a good grasp on the tactical side of the game, and we would go to games all the time together and um, my granddad was a Charlton supporter and Charlton's women's team were the best in the country and Mm. I just every year it felt like Christmas day because it was this one occasion once a year women's football would be on the tv and it's so strange that I didn't and maybe I did I don't know but I didn't ask questions of that at the time but you know I was always fascinated in, in football and when I saw and heard Jackie Oatley it made me realize that oh women have jobs or there are jobs in this game, there's a lot more that that goes on than just the play inside. Um, But even with her being a pioneer and a trailblazer and and giving me that sense of inspiration, I don't think the broadcasting ever really felt like much of a a reality or or something that was achievable. There weren't the university courses that there are now, um, the the undergraduate degrees you can do, the other bits and pieces you can do, but I knew that I wanted to work in football. That was the buzz Mm -hmm. for me. And I started volunteering and that's the piece of advice I give, particularly when I have young people ask me, you know, how do you become a talk sport commentator? Well, you've got to get the experience. And I think volunteering is a really fantastic place to learn, whatever age you are, because volunteering is an opportunity to be creative, it's a a safe space to learn it's a safe space to make mistakes and we all make plenty of them. And um, so I started volunteering at within Gillingham women's team actually funnily enough. And then it kind of all, it all grew from there. I then got my first marketing job at the local county FA, the Kent FA, went from there to Gillingham and then sort of just bit by bit, I think like, once you get that experience and once you're willing to put the hours in the stuff that you don't really think about, like growing your network, Mm. It happens organically for you, mm-hmm. and I was meeting more people, and and it all just sort of grew from there. And I left Gillingham, and um part of my role at Gillingham was to look after the the media and communication side. So I was the one sorting out press passes. I was always doing match reports, writing content. You know, I was familiar in and around that environment. But when I left BBC Radio Kent approached me, and all those conversations we'd had off there in the press room, they were like, "You've got." you know, you've got some really strong opinions, you know, mm. that you know what you're talking about, why don't you hop on and, and you know, and, and do little bits and pieces. And that grew into doing co-commentary, which then became doing reporting by myself, which then became doing commentary by myself. And um, I was fortunate enough then to be on the BBC radar, got picked up by Final Score, which,
4: mm-hmm.
2: yeah, you know, the audience then becomes millions and millions, as opposed to maybe, you know, a few thousand and then um talk sport and then you know it's just it's just fruitful opportunities that that happen when you just kind of put the hours in you build that experience so it's it's not been a sort of go to university study how to become a journalist get a placement there you go it's, it's been a very unusual route but there's stepping stones of it that I'm so proud of and I actually think hold me in better stead because you've just gone out there and you've, you've just done it you've worked at it and I don't as much as I think education is incredibly important I don't think anything mm. beats probably the same for coaches and referees and other people mm-hmm. in the game. the more you can just keep going at it then the more your confidence grows and your delivery improves
1: see that overlaps with a lot of discussions we've had with other guests when we've spoken to people in the football world a lot of them are coaches things like that and one of the things that always comes up is uh you know formal education but also the other element of it as well is if you've played professionally You know, is that the stepping stone or is that if you haven't played professionally, so to speak, is that a barrier to getting into the profession? So is that, I suppose, the natural question for you is, is that something you see on in the commentary side? Like, do you are you at a disadvantage because you were never a professional footballer?
2: It's really interesting because I think there is definitely a recruitment drive to get more players. And um, I don't think anyone that works in broadcasting has an easy route to it. Certainly not. Absolutely not. But I think perhaps you might be accelerated because you, you know, if you could get someone that's fresh from playing WSL football or fresh from England, of course, you know, you're going to want that experience. It's gold dust. It's, I don't know what it's like to play in a Euros final or anything like that. I just, I think as an individual, you just have to take a look at what you can contribute. So I've never played, but I've watched a lot of football. And I feel like that's where it becomes for me. That's my sort of USP is that I've watched enough that I feel like my region of the game is quite strong, which then helps me as a commentator. Because when you're a commentator, you have to think about so many different things. You're, you're you know, you're know trying to call the game as, as accurately as you can. You're trying to grasp what's going on tactically. You're trying to bring the flavour and life to the game, to the listener or viewer. You've also got a co-commentator alongside you. So yeah. I think for me, I just kind of, rather than focus on what I don't have, focus on what I do and then just really try and improve on the things that that I can do and sometimes not coming from a profession, you know not coming from that background is a positive and it means I have a different angle I know with Charlton TV sometimes when I cover for Scott Minto who's absolutely incredible Scott when he's with Curbs and Steve Brown they're going to have a different vibe together because you know that that's them and that's their energy but I'm almost. I can come on from more of a supporter angle and perhaps ask the questions that support mm. might be thinking. And it's all different and hopefully it's all good. Um, but for me, certainly it's it's more about reflecting on what I can bring and always thinking, what can I do better
0: um, mm. for whoever I'm working for? So it sounds like you use like a strength based approach and recognise these are my attributes, these are my skills. And Is that the the approach you've always adopted for overcoming challenges or has there been other things that you've thought i have layered that in as well? Because um, I suppose, again, if we've got uh, a young lady or a young man who's listening and goes, I'd love commentary, um, but what sort of things might I have to preempt? And, you know, what could I learn from Charlotte that could help me try and navigate that? I, I know experience is, you've got to feel it, but anything that you could share about, transferable skills or um, things that you found useful for you with your personality
2: I think I'm quite an optimistic person anyway and I'm quite good at dealing with with challenges and um, I'm always sort of a solution led mm. person and um, but for me preparation is always key whether it's been sort of in my marketing background or you know preparation for, for match days for me preparation is like it's your security blanket and the more you do with it the better and I think that probably dates back to even being a student with my GCSEs and I'm actually dyslexic which a lot of people don't know um Mm. And my dyslexia really impacts the way I learn and pick up information. I wasn't diagnosed until I was 21 at university. So I went through my whole school life compensating in lots of different ways without really knowing why. So I've always been quite a hard worker. I think I've always had to work a little bit harder because of the dyslexia. So for anyone listening, whether you're wanting to become a broadcaster, whether you're wanting to become, you know, a a pro-licensed coach, whether you want to be the best welfare officer that there is, I think preparation is always going to serve you well. And you might not use all of your preparation for a game. In fact, 90% of your notes you probably don't, but it's there. It's inherent in you. It's there when you need it to. And I think that will always come across. And when you don't do your preparation and when you don't do your homework, I think that equally is quite Clear for a listener or a viewer to to sense, and you can't really. There's no hiding places, particularly in broadcasting. <laughs> maybe a coach. You can like lean to your coaching bench and whatever. But yeah. when you're a broadcaster. You're out there, and that's why I respect people that do it because um, you know you're, you're putting yourself, your personality, your opinions, your vocabulary. You're, you're really you're putting your personality. You're putting it all out there to be judged, and it's not a, it's not an easy thing to do.
1: Well, I've seen like I think how some commentators um prepare for for their games they're covering what what do you do like do you have like a book of notes like what 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 gets you into the you know I, what gets yeah. you in
2: i'm an old school so i do handwritten notes and um, i haven't actually got it got it with me um but i have yeah a, a massive notebook and people do um people do ask a lot of questions about it actually i think people are interested in like the preparation that goes on but you know, I can have maybe like ten pages of notes ahead of a commentary. Like I say, none of that. I'm never sat at a game then reading it out. Of course not. Yes. But it's it's for me that practice again, maybe to do with the dyslexia. But it's that practice of absorbing it, researching it, writing it down, breaking it down. And it all depends on perhaps the game that you're doing as well. I do quite a lot of WSL commentary, so I know the I know the division quite well. I've done the sort of homework on the background of it and some of the teams you're you know you're repeatedly covering so the notes might be reduced a little bit but i did portsmouth gillingham in the efl trophy and that required a lot more prep because i actually find it you know i had to research the competition i needed to make sure i was up to speed with like the knockout rules and what happens when this happens and that happens you have to sort of cover all bases i'd never um reported it Portsmouth before, so I had to do a lot of homework on their players. I had to do a lot on Gillingham and their, and then all the behind-the-scenes stuff. You know, the managers in such, what's the context? What are the fans thinking about that? So, yeah, you can, you can go, you can go as deep into it as, as you know, you could do days and days and days. But I think again, with the more practice you do, you work out the bits that you know you really need to cover, and then for reporting, it's a lot simpler. I try and keep that over two pages. So I'll look at formations and. Setups in previous games, previous results, but I'll try and keep it headlining because when you're reporting, you've literally got 20 seconds. It's a very different style of broadcasting. Your producer in the studio does not want a minute-long description of um, Millwall's like goal last night against Ipswich. You know the game's kind of mm. done, so there's all those little bits you have to take into it. And then you know when you're doing post-match interviews again, that's a, a completely entirely different um sort of approach. So uh yeah it keeps you on your toes the different sort of elements of it.
0: So what I always find it fascinating when there's live commentary and there's all these these little fillers, you know, like some little backstory where the game might be a bit flat. Um and then they go, Oh, I've just got this interesting fact about this. So does that all go into your prep as well? You try to have a list of some interesting facts that you can fall back on if the game is just lacking a little bit of excitement and you just need to... Because it's almost like they have to keep the commentary going, but there's not much to commentate on the pitch that's interesting. Is is that an actual thing or is it just... Yeah,
2: absolutely. And it differs between doing a radio commentary to sort of a TV commentary. And, of course, when you're watching TV, you don't need to go into the same level of description because the viewer can see what's going on. So you probably... Hmm prepare slightly differently in terms of having those antidotes. You might refer a little bit more to player interviews that you've read in the build up managerial bits and pieces. Um, whereas the radio, you're, you, you shouldn't really be doing that too much unless mm-hmm. perhaps the ball's gone out of play and there's a period of five minutes of injury time or something mm-hmm. like that, or there's treatment going on. And you'd always be encouraged to refer to that because ultimately there's someone in their car or someone in the gym with their headphones on, they're listening, they're not there. Um, but I think, for me anyway, I think those humans touch stories are, are really great, and if you have the opportunity to weave them in and they're appropriate, fantastic. But there's also been occasions where I've had great stuff that I've really wanted to say, but it's just not been fit into the the match that's happened. But you'll, I'll always have whenever I get the team sheets in, and there's maybe so. For example, last on Sunday I was doing the Chelsea women. Leicester game. So I had a few notes about, you know, Lauren James has scored a hat trick. Sam Kerr had scored a hat trick. So I was like, you know, there might be a third Chelsea. So I have little narratives in my mm. head that I prepare for. Aggie Beaver Jones has scored four goals in her last four games if she came up. And actually, that one did come true. And there's been mm. enough one where it's that player's 50 for pips. So I have those kind of nuggets in my mind ready to drop, but only if they're appropriate. You know, there's no point shoehorning them in when they don't make sense.
0: And I suppose it's that intuition, that gut feel, where that's part of the refinement as a commentator. I imagine, you know, because you you referenced we all make mistakes, and there's probably times have you shoehorned something in, and you thought mm, that didn't feel quite right, or was something similar, or you just start to, with experience, go. There's a flow to this. I, I can start to feel where this is appropriate or not.
2: Yeah, that, that's a really good question. And again, really, I've 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 only been doing this for two to three years. I've never been formally trained to become a commentator. Okay. It's just raw enthusiasm. <laughs> um, so is. I'm still, you know, very much a novice, and I, I'm really lucky at Talksport. I've been given some mentorship by the likes of ian danta sam matterface who've been doing this for a very very long time and ian danta in particular i think i i had the opportunity to go and shadow him at a game and it's just watching a master honestly Mm -hmm. it really that gave me the sense of like what 20 years experience can give you but after the game as well he said the same thing that i experienced You, you know you almost have a half hour hour after where you just criticizing everything you always think you can do better and he said to me that will never leave you and it never should um Mm -hmm. you know there should always be that sense of wanting to get better i don't think i've ever shoehorned anything awkwardly i've definitely had moments where i've got a bit lost in it and lost the context of the game which it only Mm -hmm. happened once quite badly Um, in a World Cup game and I didn't quite realise the significance of the result because that's the thing ultimately you need to, Mm -hmm. I've learned from that now so I'm always thinking about what is the main story what is the main outcome of this if Gillingham beat Portsmouth they're through to the trip like if they don't it like just I I thought that was a really good lesson for me Um, and I think that's the thing to always bring it back down to why is this game important why does this result matter and you'll find that when you listen to the commentators you know you'll get that at the half time interlude and particularly at the end like that key message why this result matters it matters that um chelsea have beaten leicester because they're now three points clear at the top of the wsl that mm. that's the main story um and that's just sometimes you know simple is best
0: yeah um so Thinking about the WSL and the the changes that are happening, what excites you about the development in the women's game? Because you must have seen lots of great strides over the last few years. And I suppose, where's it heading to? Because um, there's got to be a trajectory that it's on. What are your uh, thoughts and opinions on that?
2: I think it's really exciting. Um, In the 10 years plus that I've been working in the game, it has changed beyond all possible recognition um at the start of my career there was just such little interest and that was why in my volunteering role at ginningham i became so passionate it became a real cause to try and get you know the the player like the players not paying wages um to get them equal access to facilities to get them some social media support to get the crowds growing now it's you know it's just huge the way the game's taken off i think the most exciting thing in terms of this new co is the commercial opportunities. And um, I think it's been quoted that they want the WSL to become the first billion pound league in the in the women's game. And I think there are huge opportunities, but I've been saying for the last five years for brands to you know step on board. I've been trying to advise clubs to take their women's game seriously and um, to understand the wider impact it can have on a football club. So I think now that there's that um, separation from the FA, we will probably see the commercial now broaden we might it be interesting to see what they do with the sort of broadcasting so i commentate on fa player which mm-hmm. is a free platform for every single wsl game to be streamed and for people to watch um so it'd be interesting to see what they what they do with that and if they carry on
0: providing that free provision mm. so with your marketing hat on you know how do you try to to pitch it You know, what do you think the brands should get involved in? Because I suppose I've seen Barclays are are, are quite heavy um, and it's trying to think, well, what brands would suit the female game? Is there ones that do or should it just be open to any sort of brand? Because if we're looking at growth and development, I suppose it's how do we attract that additional money and what the brands want from the WSL and vice versa? Can you give us insights? Because, you know, marketing fascinates me and it's trying to see how people try and pitch these things and, you know, develop them as they go forward.
2: Yeah, there's some really interesting research into the women's game that highlights that one in two would be interested in buying a product or service if that company was involved in the women's game. I think there is now a wide a wider demand slash expectation that brands should be supporting the the charge for equality in sport so that if a, if a brand was going to sponsor Arsenal, for example, there would be that expectation now that they'd be involved in the men's and women's and arguably yeah. the sponsorship would make bigger strides and make more of a return of investment if it is in the women's game. In the past, it's always been the argument that you get more bang for your buck you know, if you are a Barclays, they have had so much exposure and vitality previously, Adobe have now become FA Cup. You've had a lot more traction because yours was always the groundbreaking sponsorship. That's now going to be different because more and more brands want to get involved. And when you look at the economy and the household making decisions, are more often or not, research proves made by women. So therefore, speaking to women and investing in women or positioning your brand to care about women it, it makes perfect sense to me. But again, I think because football has been so mal-dominated for so long, there's been a lot of boardrooms that have scoffed at that idea and dismissed mm. that idea. And now they're the ones chasing their tails at how do we get a piece of this? Well, you should have listened. You should have been on board at the start. It shouldn't It shouldn't have taken, and that's maybe a bit naive to say, but it shouldn't have taken the, the million-pound deals to have got you on board. Um, and I think it's why you see clubs like lewis doing so well um and having the interest that they do with the brand that they built around equality fc they built that brand for themselves Dulwich hamlet equally have a very strong brand where their values as a club really communicate what they're about so much so that the right brands come to them whether that be lylan scott or um nike or whoever and um, so yeah it, it seems basic to me that if you want to sell a product or service you have to include women they're like you know half the population but the opportunities are massive because for so long football has ignored that part and um, so that's why I think brands now are really taking it seriously and not just in the pan sponsorships you know long-term strategic deals that keep them at the forefront of of doing this because you know, it's quite clear that that's where the opportunity is and arguably more so than some area
1: of the men's game. Switching it slightly, obviously, with taking your football hat off and putting your marketing hat on, and not just for the women's game, but I suppose you mentioned, obviously, the bang for the buck that brands are getting from the women's game, but also the men's game and stuff. Obviously, we are in a situation where, I suppose budgets are getting tighter, things like that. Where, you know, the companies that or the businesses that are sponsoring or or pumping money into advertising through football, are they, I suppose, do you think there's going to be a slowdown in that in any areas or is it going to be specific types of businesses that will continue to advertise if if they haven't got as much money available to them, I suppose at the moment?
2: Yeah, I think it's really interesting. Like you look at, you know, gambling and digital products. Yeah doing lots and lots of sponsorship um, and and for obvious reasons i think lower down the, the pyramid where the sponsorship really makes a difference what you tend to find is the csr angle is actually yeah. much more attractive than the potential sales angle and um, i think a lot of businesses question well if if, if i put my logo the front of the shirt how many of my product am i going to sell i think it's yeah. far more okay if i put my logo there What can we do through you as a football club to actually improve engagement? I think football sponsorship is a better driver of engagement, or certainly that should be the primary aim. And then, you know, if sales and um, conversions are what you want, then that can be done through a, a variety of ways. But actually, I think brand awareness and community engagement are where you tend to see the sponsorship and football come together because. Ultimately, when you take VAR aside and when you take the foreign investment aside, when you push gambling aside, the product of football still has just the most powerful means of starting conversation and making mm. massive impact. And I've always been a huge advocate of the fan experience. And again, I think perhaps in the past to chase that bottom line, clubs become so focused on hiking up ticket sales or trying to sweat their assets and get more pennies from their supporters that actually that's the flip reverse of how you should be thinking about it. Yeah, We're thinking, how can we enrich the lives of our supporters so that they don't just become a customer? And I don't mind using the word customer because I think that's important. There is a transaction like people's money. It means even more now. And when they're they're paying that money to come to your football club, what are you doing for them? How can you expand that experience? So it's not just turning up at quarter to three on a Saturday and leaving at five o'clock. What are you yeah. doing in the week? What opportunities are you providing? Because then your brand just widens. And there are some people where football isn't necessarily the hook. It's the feeling that the football club and the community that the football club has, which when you look at the likes of Arsenal, um, I think are a fantastic example of that. Their DNA is its really clear, even if you're not an Arsenal supporter. Um, so I think that's a part of the game where you have to evolve like people have to evolve and move with the times and I think that's perhaps sometimes where more traditional clubs or perhaps those that have never needed to worry about getting bums on seats are now scratching their thinking gosh what are we going to do here we're competing against tv on the telly all the time and a fan base that are more used to watching their superstars on youtube than they are in person and that's a challenge but also I think an opportunity
4: yeah, do you
0: exactly. think that's how they will grow the attendances at games then? It will be more that fan experience, which for me sounds like what the Americans do really well, isn't it? So do you think that will be the route that they'll adopt more um, within the female game?
2: I think um, in the men's and the, and the women's games, you know, I've gone to championship, maybe not so much championship, but sort of League One and below, You you can go to games and think, oh, where is everyone? You know, like it just—it feels. I remember going to MK Dons, and I was staggered thinking I had so much more time till kickoff, and it was it was ten to three, and there was just hardly <laughs> anybody there. And and I think that that those attendance figures, the clubs that really drive the supporter engagement and think more widely in terms of, well, look, who are we here to serve? Like, what do we want to provide on a match day? They tend to be better because those supporters that come through the door then become repeat customers and those kind of clubs focus on the fan experience more, um, which is really important as well. It's it's about how, you know, how can you make your club as attractive to as many people as possible? And so family like marketing to families and stuff like that, I think it's really important. And again, not necessarily been the biggest consideration for clubs that have massive long waiting lists for their season ticket holders. And then all of a sudden, perhaps when the pinch starts and that demand
4: decreases
2: where's
1: your backup plan mm-hmm. I, th- I think the the thing i've noticed and i must admit i haven't been to a low league game for quite a while but i have uh been to a few premier league games you're definitely getting a sense firstly i suppose the first thing i've sensed is the clubs and you know this is not a new thing trying to get you into the ground as early as possible and obviously like tottenham's a good example of this west ham as well actually in that They've tried to make an experience, or I'll be honest, the experience is a nice place to have a pint, really. But um, <laughs> they're generally trying to extend the match day experience from rushing into the ground at, like you say, five or ten minutes before. Um, but I suppose it goes back to what you were saying before, with the technologies that are available to us, embracing fans, and that could be fans that actually go to games or not go to games that are you know, a, a spread around the world. There is a lot of tools out there for clubs to use to 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 get fans engaged or to engage with fans, isn't there? You mentioned, yeah. you mentioned obviously like some teams are doing it better than others. and you mentioned Arsenal and things like that. I suppose on the women's side, of the game, it does it mirror the men's side on that front, or is there different teams that are innovating, I suppose?
2: Yeah, I think it's very different to the men's game. Um actually one of the clubs I know that do fan engagement really well in the women's game is a, a team in the championship Durham women who aren't affiliated to any men's team at yeah. all. So actually they've had to work really hard at building a club that has key and clear values because they're thinking of all those things, because they've had to work hard to get people through the door. It's part of the culture to really put the support to first. So all of their touch points from their website to their social media to the the meter and greeter on the door, they're all thinking, how can we make this experience good? And sometimes you can go on websites to clubs, you don't even know the postcode of the, the place. You yeah. don't know, this, you know, so many clubs in the non league pyramid in particular don't have the price free parking, which is a huge, you know, incentive yeah. for a supporter if they're thinking about where they want to spend their Saturday afternoon. So there's definite challenges in the women's game. And, you know, I was at Arsenal's Boreham Wood Ground and they had two women's toilets to facilitate a whole half of the ground. So yeah, for six really. hours, I couldn't go and use the toilet because the queues are astronomical. Right. Um, on the flip side of that, I went and worked at Bournemouth. They don't have a women's toilet in the media centre. So, you know, there's still yeah. so many things where women just haven't been on in the table. They haven't been in the room. They haven't been in the thought process of design that makes it so yeah. uncomfortable. And I think that is a focus now for the women's game is that you can't... The appeal of the individual players is a real pull. So that the Mary Earps, the Chloe Kellys, because of their brand and their exposure and England women's team success, they will draw a crowd. But the clubs themselves have to work hard at that appeal. And I think we saw last week when Chelsea had something like 3,000 at Stamford Bridge for a Champions League game. That highlights the amount of work that needs to be be done still. And there are things that can be learned from the men's game in particular for a Premier League club. The resource, you know, the resource is there. It's just... But I don't I can't I haven't worked at Chelsea, so I don't know. But how is that resource being shared? Because to me, to not have more than 3,000 at a Champions League game at Stamford Bridge is is a real missed yeah. opportunity. But you have to make it sustainable as well. But yeah, yeah, lots of different things to consider.
0: So with your FA Club consultancy hat on. How do they strengthen the pathway, or and what are the FA doing at the moment to try and strengthen that pathway from grassroots through to you know the WSL and onwards? Because what will happen if they break away with the new co? How does that relationship sort of manage between grassroots? Will it be modelled on the the male game, or will it be slightly different? Do you think?
2: Well, so the grassroots division, the program that I'm a part of, has a real focus on helping clubs be real sustainable community assets. I think there is an understanding now that that football as a as a tool almost for society, it's so much more than just providing footballing opportunities. It helps in mental health, it helps um you know enrich people's lives through volunteering. It has a huge socio economic impact. So the programme is there to help advise clubs on eight different themes from their governance to their finances, to their facilities, to their marketing so that they have business models and structures in place that can make sure they're sustainable for the, the next five years, the next 10 years and so on. And amongst all of that is the theme of football development and that is around playing opportunities for all different types of pathways. And the FA has a real huge focus obviously on women and girls but also on disability football. So I think their strategic direction is always going to be on creating opportunities for underrepresented groups to play football and within the women and girls game specifically like you asked there's a lot now being done for the girls game from wildcat centers into those teenage years looking at walking football for women now as well so I think that pathway is always going to be really really strong from the grassroots games then into the elite structure so it's going to mirror the men's game a little bit more because of course the EFL and Premier League are separate. Um, the NLS is supported and, and governs the structure. And now the women's game will also have a separate entity for the elite pyramid. Um
3: mm.
2: I think they will sort of tend probably operate in a, in a similar way. Those relationships need to be constructed, constructed for the wider benefit of the game. And, um, but it will be interesting to see the direction the new co takes it. And hopefully, you know, there's things that I would hope it would avoid mistakes it will avoid making like the men's game and it can be able to kind of grow and develop in its own way um, and be its own thing but I know across Europe there are some real big challenges in terms of that dynamic as well who's going to take responsibility for this in Spain with La Liga there were some real challenges and 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 the tipping scale of the clubs that you know are the big Premier League clubs that can write off a million pounds for their women's team doesn't apply to those in the championship. And that's, you know, that's a big, big challenge. And I think a big focus now is that the top end of the game has had all the investment. What Mm -hmm. about the rest of the pyramid? And so I think that's going to be a real area. Now the FA has let go of the top two divisions. They can focus on that pyramid a bit more underneath it to try and make that more competitive.
4: Mm.
0: Because I've seen that they've released some funding today, the Premier League Football Foundation. I think it was today or this week. Um, and that's going to be more female focused, isn't it? It's going to be trying to make sure that facilities are developed to allow them to access the pitches because I've heard, and I don't know if it's true that a lot of women, when they go to access facilities, it's the the, the graveyard slots almost. It's really yeah. late at night and um, you know, they're training at nine, 10, et cetera, uh, because for some reason they don't get the availability earlier on. So is that sort of funding to help, give them more playing opportunities. Uh, I don't Absolutely. know if you know much about it. Or no, not. I
2: do. It's, it's something I'm very sort of close to because, again, I would have seen some clubs that, who on the exterior, promote this image of equality and look at our fantastic men's team, look at our fantastic women's team, the whole one club, we're happy to take the sponsorship from businesses that want to be a part of that one club. And then I'll dig a little bit deeper or maybe speak to the coaches and find out that they give their women's team a, a third of a pitch from – 9.30 to 10, which is completely unacceptable. It's completely mm-hmm. unacceptable and it's sexist. Yeah, um, you know, there's no other, you know, that that's the sort of structural um, sexism that I'm talking about in terms of where women just kind of get put, literally, <laughs> to the bottom of the pile. So the point of this and the point of the FA and the Football Foundation who have the power and authority to change that are changing that by saying to these clubs, well, look, if you want that nice new 3G pitch, you have to make sure that you're giving your men's and women's team equal access or if we're going to give you a 700 000 to a million pound pitch we don't want it to be just filled with boys and men the men's game anymore we want to see disability football on there mm-hmm. and we want to see the women and girls game on there so i think it's that setting that stall that that's a complete non-negotiable now moving forwards um the number of, of, and back from my playing days, where there's not even a female changing room. That's still very much the the landscape out there in the grassroots game. And some of that is within clubs control. Others want to change, but obviously they need that investment. So that's a really fantastic move. And that is, again, courtesy of success on the pitch, which again is tough. And I don't think sometimes men appreciate that as much. You know, the comments I can come sometimes get about the women's game, that are quite flippant and um, you know, flipping is probably the best word. I won't go any harsher than that. But <laughs> the point that I find sometimes is that our England lionesses have to be the creme de la creme. They have to win European titles. They have to get to World Cup finals so mm-hmm. that girls can access a changing room so that young girls can go. That's not their responsibility. You would never put that on the men's game. But to their credit, the elite end of the pyramid And I suppose to a certain degree, like women like myself that now want to make it better for other generations, because we know it has been so hard. Like I wouldn't want people to go through experiences that I've had in press rooms or, you know, in in, in football clubs where you're just made to not feel wanted and that you don't belong. And Mm. the Indian Lionesses have achieved fantastic success on the pitch and they'd be well within their rights just to celebrate that and that be that. But they've used their success to really drive change and um you talk about leadership and fantastic coaches. Serena Beegman's done a number of podcasts um, linked with her book. Um, and she spoke about like how impressed she was with the players that they lifted that trophy. And the thing that they were speaking about on the bus um, the next day was we want to now get equal access for girls to play football in school. So, you know, we owe those Lionesses a lot. They have my complete respect and admiration. But I think sometimes that's the thing that frustrates me when people want to have a conversation about women's football and they really belittle it somebody just don't realize you just don't realize like how how the disparity is and um, it's not perhaps until a parent or someone takes their girl to their local football club and they see it for themselves that they they realize just how different it is and actually if you've got a son and a daughter, they should be able to have the same experiences in life and why would you not want to contribute to that?
1: Mm-hmm.
3: So uh,
2: another good stride in, in the right direction for sure
1: one thing that has i suppose recently made the headlines and it's been discussed i suppose obviously we've just been discussing comparing the experience from from between the sexes but one of the things that seems to be coming up a fair bit now is is within the pool of players that are playing in women's football and then and are actually making it to the england side um there's i suppose questions around is women's football that accessible to everyone in that i suppose there was the the picture of the arsenal women's team that was every player was white but also this feeling that the shall we say the players that are playing for england as an example most of them come from quite well not well to do but they're from middle class backgrounds where they've got parents that will drive them here there and everywhere and it i suppose when you look at it compared to the youth of the men's game that's very much driven by people coming out of big cities the the women's game is coming out of you know not the suburbs but you know like uh nice places around the south east uh, in the midlands in, in the north that kind of thing is that how big a problem or do you see that as a problem i suppose for the development of the game
2: I think football, you know, should reflect society, and diversity is is really important. I've just explained sort of from a female perspective, and that applies exactly the same way for diversity. And it's something yes. that the FA are acutely aware of, and there are strategies in place now to try and ensure that inclusivity and accessibility is the priority. Because exactly like you say you have to normally if you're an elite player have to rely upon a parent to take you here yeah. and there to be able to drive. that's not always the case and um, you know elite see of its center of excellences will be in particular areas well what about those that can't get to them um yeah well so i think again it's another part of the growth of the game and because the growth has been so acceler- accelerated i think there's now that stark contrast where the fa and other you know all of the football clubs themselves I think Arsenal put a statement out and said you know some something along the lines of like you know they know that there's a lot more that they can be doing and whilst their team is full of internationals from all over the world there has to be that responsibility to reflect the society um that you serve so I think we will see the it's going to take a long time as well like to you know, it can't happen soon enough, but I think with all elements like everything we're talking about, the facilities, the diversity, the, um, you know, the parity with wages, they're all part of a longer term strategy. But Because of this sort of catalyst of success with the Euros and the Women's World Cup, there's that hunger and appetite to do it even more quickly. So I'm really excited. And I think co as well will be a, a, a platform platform hopefully again the money just enriching it because that's where the money needs to go that's how you've seen the growth of a global brand like the premier league so hopefully it'll be able to unlock opportunities and funding to further broaden the reach and make sure that those that need the support and help to get on the the player pathway are given that and the clubs as well because talking about the grassroots landscape and the fa's vision i know that they really understand that the clubs play such a a key role in supporting people they know their communities a lot, lot better than the FA will ever do. So actually allowing a club in East London to have the provision that it knows will serve its community is going to be very different to perhaps one in the Northeast or one in Cornwall and understanding that and the nuances that come with different communities from across the country, I think it's really, really important. But in the meantime, I think the work around using the England Lionesses and where they come from and, and the sort of PR, I suppose, around that is important because if you can't see it, you can't be it. And that's Mm. something that um, the FA has to take responsibility for. And the corporate partners and the sponsorship do take responsibility for as well. So, um, yeah, hopefully the change will keep coming.
0: So um, with my coach developer hat on my FA coach developer hat, um, when we think about academy structures within the male game, Uh, the wages at the top end aren't bad but at the rest of the pyramid you know it's quite tight is is that reflected in the female game as well because we know we both know Natalie Curtis she's academy and manager now um you know and I I imagine she's facing challenges with budgets and everything else is that something that you see and if it is again where where do you see that developing and growing and changing
2: it's not something I I sort of see on a day-to-day basis because I don't work within a a club like that but I suppose from my observations of when I have the luxury of dipping in and out of games and going to grounds and stuff like that I definitely think at the championship level in the Barclays championship the one underneath the women's super league it is really challenging you get your Mm. FA funding but you know you've got contracted players you've got a a talent center I mean I know not through um, through conversations more than anything but where some clubs struggle to even cover their travel Mm. because you know, it's it's a lot. It's a lot to keep that elite provision there, and that's not just uh, exclusive to the women's game. That's in the NLS as well. You know, I think that's one of the big, you know, talking points, isn't it, of how far you potentially have to travel in in sort of steps three and four in the men's game. So, I think if you speak to anyone involved in a football club, even in the pro game in the EFL, and look, we just need to look at the finances mm. and look at the struggles that are going on across the football pyramid. It's in some senses, the lack of governance has created that and mm-hmm. the yo-yoing that goes on between the Premier League and the championship. So to be honest, we could probably have a whole podcast just on the finances before <laughs> and, and how yeah. challenging they are and how people like Natalie, like you say, who is an absolutely fantastic coach and amongst looking after all the technical side of her work, she mm. has to balance the books as well. And it's why sponsorship is so important and sustainability is so important and why I hope the new co for the women's game really keeps that in the heart of it because I would hate to see it. I would almost, I don't know, it's a really hard one because, you know, arguably if the money's there, why should clubs not be able to pay their players more and so on? But it it comes at a risk of the competition. But I also don't want to see clubs go under because they just can't afford to keep up.
3: Hmm. uh, uh,
1: Yeah, go on, Dave all i was going to ask on the on the subject of money and stuff like that we talked about obviously like betting companies things like that and also what we've seen in other sports um not just women's but men's sports do you think there is going to come a point where women's football is going to take money from I suppose not everyone thinks they're controversial but controversial type businesses or in some cases countries shall we say
2: well i think the irony of all of that is that those countries supposedly don't want any you know anything to do with women's rights there was yeah there there's a more i think there's a more conscious consumer in the women's game i think actually hmm. where the money comes from matters a bit more so there was a lot of uproar when i oh gosh was it visits is it Saudi Arabia or, or
3: mm.
2: somewhere, wanted to sponsor the Women's World Cup and the players themselves were the yeah. ones that said and used the power of their voice, I don't think that happened. Well, it doesn't happen in the men's game. Um, you know, we saw a World Cup take place in a country where, you know, it, it, it isolates a lot of people and so on. So I think, I think in the women's game, there is a lot, there's a different type of audience there and they really care about decisions like that. And it would be very remiss I think of certain if, if clubs were to take money from certain companies that didn't align with those brands whereas I think in football there's almost just a bit more of an acceptance that you know Brentford for example will have a betting company blazoned on their front of their shirt but miss their centre forward for nine months because of a ban you know that, that hypocrisy or that that discomfort Um, doesn't affect everyone I think in the women's game it it probably it probably does a lot more so they are more conscious but like I say in a similar way there's a lot more opportunity to collaborate with with good brands there are lots of good brands out there Mm. Barclays for one Vitality for one (laughs) a you know it's really interesting to see because those sponsors and I've been fortunate enough to do some work at events where Barclays have been in the room and speak and, and they really love that you know they have their financial reasons of course but what they love about the partnership with the WSL is the stuff they get to do within the girls game and the education sector as well. It opens up such a rich partnership for them and that's where when I was working in the game trying to get those kind of deals, the club, that's what I'd say. You can go and give your money there but here we can do this and we can do why and you have a bit more freedom and flexibility to do things mm-hmm. that we've been done before, whereas the men's game can be slightly more rigid or there's kind of less opportunity to do so.
0: So with my coach developer hat still on, going back to your commentary bit, um, you you touched on your technical and tactical knowledge and now, how did you develop that? You know, did you go on a course at any time or is it just um, via osmosis? You know, you were at games and, um, you know, you you just started to tune into, ah, I can see this pattern building up here and I can start. So would you be able to give us some insights? How do you develop that? You know, because it is time served, obviously.
2: I think, I gosh, like how many games I've watched in my life at every level and in certain scenarios for certain clubs, I've had the opportunity to spend time with coaches and I listen, you know, I, I listen. And exactly what you say, Osmosis, like when I'm in a studio with Alan Kerbishley and Steve Brown, I'm listening to every single word they say off camera, particularly, you know, people like Steve Brown who... I love commentate I love not it's not the commentators job to call this but I love co commentators and pundits who show me something I don't know or tell me something Mm -hmm. I can't see and Brownie Mm -hmm. does that so well at Charlton and so I I think it's an element of yeah literally time served but having conversations with people and just listening and learning all the time and I'm fortunate enough to do a lot of post-match interviews and every single one of those are banked in my mind and help enrich my understanding and perhaps there are some people that interview and just ask the questions and then they're done but for me it's always an educational piece and I've been like I say, I've interviewed so many managers as well that you know every word I kind of I, I, I take on board and you know sometimes if you're if you're working at a club for a long time you get to build more personal relationships so in even in a non-professional setting you're able to just have conversations and and pick up things, which I just find really interesting because no coach is ever the same. Um, no 90 minutes is ever the same. So there's always something to be learned. And anytime that I've got a day off or an evening off, I'm probably listening to talk sport or watching a game and, and thinking, well, how are they doing that? What's that person picked up on? And, and podcasts and stuff are also really, really helpful. Um, but no, I've never done a, a coaching course. Um, but I think the reading of the game is something that I've now got and I feel like if I didn't I'm not sure how I'd go about getting it if that makes any sense at all um, no, that makes sense. yeah I, I feel like that's that again when it comes back to identifying what I know I'm strong at
3: mm-hmm.
2: that is something that that through yeah so many years of watching the game and listening I feel like it's quite a strength
0: now Because a big characters have come out I'm just thinking of Kevin Keegan he may have mis- misquoted when he spoke about female um, commentators um, how does that make you feel when older ex-players also, you know, sort of browbeat it or make a negative about, you know, the way they don't enjoy a female commentator for whatever reasons? You know, I know it's probably been one of the challenges you faced. You've, you've spoken about that in the professional game in certain areas, but how does that sort of impact? How does that, you know, affect you? Or does it affect you? No, it does affect
2: me. It's really hard to describe. Because my, my feeling is that everyone is entitled to their opinion and Kevin hmm. Keegan's opinion is shared probably by the majority of people and don't think that women in football don't know that. Like, we are very well aware of that fact and sometimes we're made to be aware of that fact. My my take on it is that do you do you have to express it? Do you have hmm. to use your platform and your position <laughs> to say that? I wouldn't. I wouldn't actively criticize something i don't like it, it comes down to the point of like again when people say oh well, i don't like women's football i think leah williamson once said, "Well, that's fine i don't like golf but i don't feel the need to you know yes. constantly drive it down um because it is a tough position to be in Something i love my job i'm not saying this of any kind of chip on my shoulder but sometimes you feel like you can't win you know mm. you get told um you know, you can be told negative things or then you can be told you're, you're only there because, you you know, you could work so, so hard for an opportunity, years and years, and then you just get told you're a tick box. So mm. it sometimes feels really, really hard to win. So comments like that are really disappointing because they just amplify that. And like I say, I think everyone's entitled to their own opinion. I know for sure that whenever I'm doing a piece of work, I have a stereotype or a... um. I have a barrier there already that even the most open-minded person in their deep unconscious will make some sort of assumption about me because I'm a woman doing it and it might just take one little report and be like oh she's good or there might you know there are some people you know that say things to me sometimes that you know are are really meant to be compliments and and they're kind of a little bit backhanded but you get there in the end and um, I think there are people now that enjoy listening to different types of voices and opinions I know I certainly do I think when you look at the likes of some of the team at Talksport, um, Natalie Sawyer, Shivana Hearn, Faker Rubbers, they bring a different kind of perspective. And when I became Talksport's first female commentator, that was incredible, but it comes with a lot of responsibility. Mm. And um you want to make sure that you don't mess up because you want other mm. people, women to be given a chance as well. So um yeah, it's um, it's a tough one, but I think ultimately my mind is always just a sense of disappointment when you hear and read something like that because it's always just, I feel like it's such a shame because even if he hasn't meant it to, obviously that quote's going to be taken and it is going to be used to fuel stuff. And I think the Karen Carney incident that happened a few years ago in Leeds, quite a lot of people didn't understand why that felt so bad. They're like, well, look, they they would do it for a male commentator, but the point is, it's different. Mm. You're literally sending her like that tweet that Leeds sent her. To threw her to the walls like you mm-hmm. to antagonize that situation but anyway that, um, that's a whole other thing but ultimately it's disappointment but it's it is what it is and i think when you do like i said earlier when you do a job like this and you you put yourself out there you know you're going to get criticized and you're not going to be liked by everyone and um, the best of the best still have to put up with some horrible mm-hmm. on social media some like social media in particular never like I imagine face to face, but I've got colleagues where some of the stuff that gets sent to them is appalling, really, really sad. And um, we should all just be a bit nicer and enjoy the game that we all love.
1: <laughs> yeah it, I think I suppose following on from that, wh- where what do you think what what event do you think then allows us to say women and men have parity in in the football world? like from from your job perspective, are we saying, the first woman to commentate on a on a world cup final or do you know what i mean where yeah. do, what I point do you think we're be, at an um, equal footing
2: yeah i think there's always going to be those sort of metrics aren't there you know sky with the first female this talk sport with the first female that and um, i think there's going to there's going to be a lot of that for the next sort of 5 to 10 years until it becomes far more normalized and you yes. just have a roster of talented people. And it Absolutely. doesn't matter if they're male. It doesn't matter if they're female. It doesn't matter if they're dyslexic. It doesn't matter if, you know, if they're able-bodied or not. You know, literally, they are just the best people that are really, really good at their job. And one week yes. you want to listen to a commentator that's in your top three. The next week you might not like them so much, but they're just a talented roster of people um, that are given an opportunity. And mm-hmm. that's all you can ever ask. That's always my thing of... of we should all strive for equal opportunity for people. Um, I'm not the biggest fan of positive discrimination. I, I, it's very, very complex and I understand the need for it. I do. But I know for me personally, I would hate to get a job because I was a woman. Mm. Um, but I think that's something that we should all strive towards. And I think the more we can keep actively giving women those opportunities. There was a female commentator in Germany who became the first German no, the first female commentator to commentate on, on the Champions League in Germany. And her broadcasting company actually came out with a really strong statement because of the social media abuse that she got and said something along the lines of, you know, a woman is judged before she's even spoken. And it really stuck with me, or, or something along those lines. It was probably far more articulate and it's definitely a lot more powerful than that. But I think as long as those broadcasters understand that as well. The, yeah. that, that we've still got a lot, long way to go in that respect um you know that that will have, you know hopefully that will change your time and I think it does I think the, the sort of younger generation now is a lot more open-minded with things like that I literally didn't grow up with hearing a woman's voice so even for me sometimes in my own voice I'm like oh you know because I've just literally that is all I've heard for 30 years of my life so mm. there is going to be a bit of, of growing pain with it as well
0: so um you know we've talked a lot about challenges but you must have some moments that you're very proud of is there one that really yeah. sticks out for you that you go you know what that that was amazing that situation
2: i think the talk sport being talk sport's first female commentator was um mm.
0: and yeah. what was the game what what was the game your very first one for talk sport you know because that must be burned yeah. into the memory
2: ireland ireland canada i did a lot of uh, again this is what i mean sometimes i think people don't don't realize you don't just get these opportunities like that mm. i'd actually done three games beforehand where i'd gone to matches and done commentary that went to the guys at talksport to listen to so they didn't go out on air so when i'm thinking my first game i'm actually thinking well you went to millwall then you went to qpr and then my first one on air was um was yeah the republic of ireland versus canada in the world cup and then nigeria as well so that was um that was pretty cool but I, I need I know I need to do a lot of work in terms of building my own confidence with stuff like that and trying not to get in my own head about it. Um so yeah, that was definitely a, a really, really proud moment. My family's Irish as well, so it's quite nice that it was a Republic of Ireland game. And and tomorrow going to Wembley to do an England game. The last time I, the last time England lionesses were at Wembley was the um Brazil friendly, but I think the last competitive game for that was the European final and I was there with my family as a supporter, and now I'm going you know as a member of the press so that will be a very very special night as well so yeah definitely i think sometimes again when you're in football it's such a um fast-paced environment you don't necessarily take time to pause on those highlights and that's really important to do i try and keep every single team sheet so again mm-hmm. i've got that all stored and sometimes i go I can't even remember that game but they're nice to <laughs> they're nice to look back on i was there <laughs>
0: Because we had uh, an elite um, taekwondo, um, you know, martial artist the other day. And he said when he was at these top championships and competing and he won, he didn't celebrate it as much as he would like. So as someone who's working in the elite end of broadcasting, you know. Do you get to celebrate? It says that you keep the, the the things, you know, those pinch me moments. Do you get to go, you know what, I've got to cherish this and, you know, hold on to it for a bit because they can be fleeting because you are bouncing through, you know, did you say five games this week?
3: Yeah. Which You yeah.
0: know, that's a lot of prep and getting ready and then moving on to the next one. So do you get that opportunity to, or do you even want to do it? I don't know. It no, might be different for you. There's
2: always like, there is always an underlying sense of gratitude to be doing it and mm. appreciation to be doing it um. but I don't think I'm good enough sometimes at, yeah that that because it's always on to the next one
4: because mm.
2: it's so fast-paced or that sense of you know wanting the next thing so I definitely think there's more that I can do sometimes to just really really soak it up um, but then arguably you're in your professional mode so you're really sort of on the task at hand but mm. There are like, you know, times when you've left a game and you feel like it's all gone well and you know you can reflect back on it and stuff like that. But it is quite a hard balance to to obviously focus, to enjoy, to celebrate, but then to have your downtime away from it as well. Um but no, I certainly, you know, I certainly do appreciate it and probably don't um appreciate how far I've come in a short space of time. Um just because sometimes that's just you know you just always it's not like we, we're very good at is it sometimes like appreciating what we've done and, and giving ourselves a pat on the back so um the, the nicest moments come sometimes when sometimes the family get to be at games or something like that you know and they get to be a part of something or the nicest moments are when someone says oh, I just heard you oh, I'll get a message from someone I've not heard from in a long time said I've just heard you on Talksport," talk sport or send me a, a, a video of something and um, that they're really really nice moments because that makes the connection feel the more real because again i'm telling you all this about broadcasting but most of the time i'm by myself i'm preparing by myself i'm traveling to a game by myself i'm reporting by myself so when i get to do things in the studio with other people i love it because that's when it all really feels real because you've got other people around you to sort of bounce off of as well so um but yeah definitely so so grateful for it for sure you know little me that went to football with my dad literally didn't even think this was possible so it's all just massive yeah massive
1: thrill i mm-hmm. suppose building on that then if we take a lot of people we speak to have again going back to actually the taekwondo guy that we we spoke that Simon mentioned he talked a lot about goals like he, he although he wasn't savoring the victory at that point part of that i think was because he had a clear idea what his next goal was so there was always the next that he had do you, i suppose how you work do you have that kind of structure or is it just a case at the moment saying yes to opportunities that come your way or is there you know i don't know is there a clear you know what is your next i suppose is there a next really i
2: think because my career journey has just been um so unorthodox i could never yeah predicted any of it i i find it hard to be very set on like this is my one goal i've had organizations that i've really wanted to work for and i'm so grateful that i'm working for three of them at the moment you know i was always yes. doing the fa bbc and talk sport i have times where i sit at home and i might watch someone broadcast and think god that's what i want to do next mm. um but i think because it is so so hard and again i i don't have any real connection to anyone that knows this industry particularly well i've just sort of grafted and things have land landed like with lots of hard work so it's it's really hard to sort of to have those really fixed um goals in mind i think i'm just of the mindset that i know that i love doing broadcasting and it makes me feel like i'm in exactly the right place and in order to be able to do more of that and for that maybe to be the full-time gig I just need to keep working hard um, and try and and be proactive where possible so um, yeah it's for me going freelance at the start of the year was you know that was the really big thing and I thought right give it a year see how it goes Um, and I'm really grateful that it has yet to be a year and it has definitely been the right decision so I think it's kind of just solidifying that, and hoping that I'll be able to perhaps one day literally just do the broadcasting and and take the marketing hat off once and for all, and um, that would be wonderful. But when I I know the sort of careers of the Laura Woodses of this world, and it it takes a long long time. Like people like that, you don't get to be on TNT or Sky or Talksport Breakfast without lots and lots of time. So all I can do is try and keep working hard and taking on feedback and keep continually trying to get better and hope that that leads to, to new opportunities
1: would you ever consider g- going overseas like you see the success that british female broadcasters have had in especially in the united states like um katie abdo with CBS and also on the gulf side there's some very prominent british um female pundits and commentators that have literally just carved up the the environment there do you think into working out for us
2: yeah definitely i think i'd enjoy any opportunity like that and i think my thing has always been um when approached by broadcasters it's almost like the football club scenario and the sponsors like just making sure that i'm a bit of a fit for them you know i've been approached yeah haven't felt right and if they haven't as hard as it is sometimes you're thinking oh god you know experience and steps and stuff like that you know you have to be strong enough to say no to things that don't feel right but no definitely yeah. i'd love to that you know if i was to say next goal that would be the thing for me would be i'd love to go abroad with work even if it's like covering games abroad i did the women's world cup but it was all based here even though it was taken yeah. from australia and new zealand so that would be a wonderful goal for 2024 to be you know maybe part of some euros coverage or something like that or had the
0: opportunity to to do so um, would be
2: fantastic.
0: Is the female commentary space quite collaborative? Do you help each other and mentor each other, or is it just commentators in general? Because I th- I know you mentioned Sam Matterface and the Andante uh, have been supportive. Um, do do you? F- have a mentor or someone that you you go to or is there just a few people
2: yeah i don't have a mentor as such but um you know ian ian dance is definitely someone i could speak to and and just in general it is quite a supportive space and particularly Mm. um with the bbc and the women's game and stuff like that we have like whatsapp groups where we try and help with sources and pronunciations and stuff like that and again now i've been doing it more i recognize more faces in the press boxes now so um you know that that's really really nice and it is in general really supportive I've definitely had times where you know you, you you feel like you're an alien that's landed like they just look at you like who the hell are you sort of thing but that's um that's changing again that's just the old stereotypes of of the press boxes just look in a very certain way and people don't necessarily mean it spitefully it's just you're different um but no overall it's really really supportive I'm lucky to work with great people um, at talk sport and at the BBC that are just so lovely and so helpful. Jason Mohammed at the BBC is wonderful. Um, So I'm really, really lucky that there are plenty of people that that want to help and are very happy to give advice because I think, I mean, even when I have young um, six-formers or anything ask me, I'm always wanting to give advice. So I I think there's that really nice sense that people, when they've opened doors, they want to be able to make sure that people come in behind them.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: That's good to hear because you... I, I, to be honest in in, in not just football or, or on the media side of football as well in a lot of different careers you can get shall we say sharp elbows that yeah. uh, <laughs> and also other things like that that really just yeah just hinder it's just not yeah it's it's a terrible environment to be in but it sounds like that, that what you're doing now is yeah it's a very it, it, it sounds like an environment you want to be in that that's the that's the key and I've of
2: been of the mindset really like you are who you are and i have principles that i like to work by and so i'm never going to change so if i yeah. can't get that opportunity or if that door is closed and that opportunity then it's obviously not meant to be for me i think i've learned that with football you know that sometimes um if you're not wanted then there's that's not always your problem (laughs) Um, you know if you're forced out of somewhere or you know made to feel like that environment isn't isn't suitable for you or the flexibility that your needs are not are not catered to then that's fine you can just walk away and that's that's not a problem likewise if the way that I like to do things doesn't suit an environment then that's fine because I like the way that I work and I like supporting people and I think the values I have sometimes don't lend themselves to football, could probably be a lot further if I was a bit more cutthroat, but don't have a single bone like that in my body. But I'm, I'm quite happy with where it's taken me so far.
0: So. Um, so we, we get lots of different people from variety of backgrounds with this inspiring story, where they've come from, where they go into challenges, they faced. Now we always ask them, do you have a quote that you live by a statement, a poem? We've had a lovely poem from Dr. Naomi Murphy. Is there something that you look towards that helps you stay focused and motivated or, or not, you know, cause we've had some who say, no, no, I just got this drive, this passion.
2: Yeah. I, I don't, um there's a few like sayings that i find sort of really resonate with me but in terms of i suppose a principle that's come from the way i was i've been brought up it's it's to work hard and be kind to people like and that i find that you know it serves you serves you well Um i think as we probably covered in our conversation if you want to get anywhere in football or in any walk of life you're not going to do it without hard work and i've always been a hard worker um and you need that graft you need that grit otherwise you're just not doing the miles that you need to do you're not yeah you know you're not gonna get those opportunities and and keep them and then the being kind point i say that not in a sort of transactional sense that oh if you're Mm -hmm. nice to someone they'd be nice to you i just think just the little things can go a really really long way um and just silly things like sometimes when you go into a press box you have to have an icn kit and any broadcaster will tell you it's it's anxiety riddling because technology isn't always kind but i've been the person where i've had trouble and no one's helped me Mm. so i'll always make sure and on the flip side i've met some incredibly kind people who have gone above and beyond to help me and i just know how that's made me feel and and i just think that's quite a nice way to be in an industry that sometimes can be incredibly cutthroat where there's a lot of pressure and a lot of stress on people as much as it can be absolutely joyful. So I think if you have that kindness in your approach and that empathy, particularly, like I say, with my role sometimes where I'm interviewing players and managers and the circumstances can be of such a variety. I think having that sort of core value is really important and it might not be that, oh, okay, I've got the opportunity to interview this manager after they've been smashed, I'm going to get the clickbait. That's not my style. Mm -hmm. style I'd rather build a rapport and ask you questions in a, polite empathetic but still professional way so that you give me the best answer so i think that 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 kind of serves me hopefully well in both football and, and life outside of it mm-hmm.
1: yeah i i agree totally like I and mean, not to to throw my experiences in this but i remember i i i when i i finished university and i worked for like an it consultancy company and and they did all this training because i was like on a graduate scheme and this guy (laughs) i i just shudder thinking about what he says he was giving us advice on how to be successful and one of his tips um was when you go into like a customer's office be be nice to the small people on the desk is the exact (laughs) words is what he used and and it wasn't just like oh it was be nice to the small people because they may help you in the in the future sometime and i just thought what a i won't say it but <laughs> just thinking like if that's your attitude like why do, are you not nice to the people like doesn't yeah. matter like you know where you meet them or whatever it's just like it was just the way he said it and i just thought how would you why would you ever want to be like that so it agree i agree totally with you just just be nice to people, and it makes such a difference, doesn't it?
2: Well, ultimately, at the end of the day, whenever we go to work, we want to have a good time, and yeah. you want to be around good people. And I, yeah, I know from when I've been in positions to recruit people or put a team together.
1: Exactly.
3: Yeah,
2: I'm not going to re- employ someone I don't think is capable for the job. But my goodness, if they're a good person and they bring those qualities, yeah. or someone says to me, "Oh, we need someone to do this. Can you think of anyone?" I'm nine times out of ten going to pick. A nice climb, and it's not always things yes. that I notice. It you know, ob- observing how people react and, yes. and how they are, and um, you know, I see a lot that players do that goes unnoticed, and um, you know, sometimes they get a really really hard time, and and the stuff that they have to deal with is really tough, and people don't see those moments um as well. So I've just yeah, I just think it's a really important thing to to stand by.
1: I think that's a lovely back... oh go on dave sorry mate go on. all i was gonna say was obviously it's that's a great way to look at things but i suppose going back a bit to what you were saying before um obviously you this you're coming towards the end of your first year where you took the plunge as a freelancer um you mentioned obviously it looks like it's paid off um but i suppose if you you mentioned obviously the marketing stuff you're doing before. if you if you did have to go to that and it it doesn't sound like you would, but if you if you if this year hadn't worked out as as you planned, would you be going back to the marketing side of things, or I don't know, what would have been your your plan B, I suppose?
2: Yeah, I think the plan B would have have gone would have been to go back to marketing and you know it's, I, I did my postgraduate in marketing. I'm a chartered marketeer, so that's that strong sort of um backdrop to go to. Um it, it's still a passion of mine, but the buzz that I feel when I'm presenting and and doing live broadcasting, it just feels like that's where I'm meant to yeah. be. that that feels, you know, and I still really enjoy talking about things like fan engagement. I still really enjoy trying to help clubs be successful. But doing the broadcasting just feels the most electrifying. And just like I say, that that combination of like where you're just meant to be, like where your skill and your personality aligns with like something you completely love. Um so and even even when the results aren't good, you <laughs> know, it's not always I've had some students shadowing me recently and we did a game and it was 4-0 and I was like, right girls. I'm not gonna be Debbie Downer here, but just so you know, everybody didn't like this, you know. Yeah. They came back to another game and they saw the flip side of a not so good result. And uh, in somewhere in between all the highs and lows, if you can carve a career out of it, then you know that that's brilliant.
1: Can I just say though, you're right. You you, you spoke so well when we were talking around um, you know, that engagement and also the flip of say the businesses that want to uh, invest in football and things like that i've not really heard anyone kind of sum up the whole environment so in in how you did it in such a small short amount of time like i've heard people try and explain it over an hour and they still haven't been able to explain kind of what you know what businesses are getting out of marketing or or spending money in football so you know i don't I don't think you'll ever need to go back to that but you know if you do you, Thank you. Thank you. I you do speak that. with a lot of
3: authority. You know that I,
2: think it, I think again like sometimes I don't beat myself up for the fact that I didn't I've not got a degree in journalism yes. I've got to accept that I don't and actually I think it's been I keep saying um an unorthodox career journey but I think it kind of serves me well yes. I think I've been in that environment and I've been in the boardrooms of the clubs and I've been the marketing like, I think it enhances the commentary or the yeah. reported even if I'm not literally saying on air certain things I feel like it's just really strengthened my position now um when it when it comes to working in broadcasting I'm I'm really really grateful for it and I just think having that when you're a journalist having that appetite for knowledge is just so important and it doesn't matter that I haven't got a degree in it um that's mm. it, it's still it's still the thing that gets me up in the morning and gets me reading articles, listening to podcasts. You could do that degree, but if you haven't got that that thirst for knowledge, and I don't know
0: if you could do it as a job. Really, yeah. you need to have it. Yeah, yeah. I, so many you need to worry. So <laughs> so many of our guests, Dave, haven't they? I've uh, have gone yeah. through career change, and yeah. they say about that transferable skill set that they've taken from one role into the other, and being more of a generalist rather than a specialist. Because sometimes if you do just go down a specialism route, it niches you. And I think when you've got that other things to, to pull on and perspectives, it brings that richer conversation that you, you've touched on there, that you give perspectives that other people might not. You know, if we just have football people talking about football things, we yeah. get that narrow bandwidth sometimes. So I think when you get that broader spectrum, it just gives it that richness that I think broadens the base for more people. Uh, yeah. you know it, it's not exclusive it, it's more inclusive in that way so for me I, I found it fascinating today to just listen to someone with expertise in this variety yeah. of areas because I've taken so much from it around what's happening from grassroots all the way through and the insights of commentating and the the, the, yeah. the stuff that goes into it we've probably all grown up with john motson and you know what he used to do but to see the challenges that you faced and how you navigate them with good humor optimism perseverance it's it's those traits that come across all the time with the guests that we get who are inspiring and you know it, it's lovely to hear that you know you're another one who's pushing this through and you might not feel it at the moment i don't yeah. know if you're because you're right in the midst of it but when someone's external to it you can see well, actually, this person is driving um, that change. That's that, that is happening in the, the female game, and it would be fascinating to to watch. I know I'll be actually watching yeah, BBC Focus more uh, rather than Sky Please. News just to see, <laughs> just to you know have a listen, um, you know, and just say, oh yeah, we, we had Charlotte on the podcast, and that would be great, you know, uh, just to name drop you in. So, Charlotte, thank you so much for coming yeah, on and you. sharing those insights. It, it's so valuable for us. You know, me and Dave love these conversations, but our listeners as well, those younger people who can be inspired by these sort of stories and think, you know what, hard work, kindness, graft, optimism, determination, all those attributes, you know, will get you to where you want to get to. And, you know, don't shy away from that hard work because look look, what's achievable. And like you say, you're three years into your commentary, but a year freelancer So, what does the next seven to ten years look like? You know, it it sounds exciting. So, just want to say thank you so much for coming on and sharing these insights with us.
2: Well, thank you for the opportunity to come and chat. I really, I've really enjoyed it, and not to be the one asking the questions. (laughs)
4: Uh,
1: We, everyone we've spoken to that's in the football world that's kind of on their way up, the one question we always ask them. So, we need to ask you is can we get free tickets when on the way up
4: <laughs>
3: <laughs> uh, we've I not, uh,
2: whenever it gets to like April May time all of a sudden I get these like hello stranger messages yeah, like, oh, here yeah. we go. It's cup season again it's cup season again or if everyone of the clubs I work at gets a good draw um yeah but no it's uh it's,
1: yeah, it's, not, well, it's small go. luxuries right Of, of working yeah because <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, we spoke to, uh we've had a few people on like at the moment the, the kind of strength of our picketing options are mainly in non-league football aren't they really so yeah, I mean, yeah, we've, got, yeah. we've had we're, scouts we're trying to go them. up a notch yeah yeah <laughs> we need to we need to get out of the men's like kind of um nation nation league kind of level but uh yeah no, I, i'm only joking but everyone we always ask for football we do always ask that so yeah but yeah yeah no, nice thank you. Get dates. yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> thank you very much for that, it's been a real pleasure as simon says it's been fascinating chat and it, the the breadth of your knowledge is just outstanding i as i said like I I knew who you were before. I've listened to you a bit on talk sport and stuff like that, but your understanding and your breadth and knowledge around the whole world of football, not just obviously the commentator you do is, is impressive. So, you know, I, I expect your career to grow in the commentating world, but I would not be surprised if it takes you in other areas as well. So uh, we will be watching closely and, and, and obviously remember us when you're at the top and uh, hopefully you can come back on and uh, explain how you got there. No,
2: thank you. Thank you so much. It's been nice and it's given me a little bit of an opportunity actually. Even some of the questions you posed, I've not necessarily considered before. So it'll be nice to kind of, yeah, have the opportunity to reflect and, and go into the next couple of days of work and actually, yeah, really appreciate, you know, where, where I'm at and the opportunities I've got. And uh, the like you say, the hard work quite simply that's, that's uh, mm enabled that, so thank you
0: Yeah, absolutely brilliant, well thank you for your time and enjoy the game, is it tomorrow England-Netherlands? It yeah. is Nick. It's Nick, yeah.
2: I mean I never tend to know what day of the week it is, but yeah, it's England-Netherlands yeah. <laughs> tomorrow so I'm going to do a little bit more homework tonight on it and then uh, I've got Millwall-Sunderland on Saturday and then a few days off which would be, which will be yeah. nice
0: Lovely, but, absolutely lovely, thank you very much Charlotte thanks and for uh, all you. the best
2: Bye later, take care, thank you